Today's reading comes from 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 1 through 11. Now concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you. For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying, there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. But you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. For you are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet the hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up, just as you are doing. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Maddie. And thank you all for joining us today online and here in our sanctuary. It is great to have you with us on this beautiful fall morning. And before we begin the message today, I'd like to take just a couple of minutes and talk about what we call our vision frame. One of the exciting things that um, we have observed since our church went online in March and, and we went for these some months with no one here in our sanctuary is that new people began joining our worshiping community online who had actually never set foot in our building before. And so one day when we're all worshiping back together again, I'm sure you'll see a number of new people who in this unusual season became part of our church uh, by engaging with our online services. And so, because we have a number of people who are fairly new to our church, I want to say just a few words about who we are. And I think one of the best ways to understand our church, who we are and who we hope to be, is by considering our vision frame that you will see on the screen. Think of the vision frame as a window frame through which you're looking into the future. And in the future, you see what we call our vision 2025. Our vision 2025 is about a page and a half document that paints the picture of who we feel like God would have us be as a church. This is not some human strategy for church growth. This is a much talked over, prayed over a vision for the kind of church we think God uh, would have us increasingly to be. Around the frame on the right side, you see our mission statement, building followers of Jesus who are sent to reach others. And what this basically means is that we believe as we grow in our faith as disciples, followers of Jesus, we should each be embracing our identity as people who are sent into the world. As Jesus prayed to the Father, as you have sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. A mature, growing follower of Jesus has embraced his or her identity as a sent person, sent to take Jesus' love and his truth to the people in the world around us. The discipleship pathway is kind of a map for spiritual growth, steps for spiritual growth. If you'll notice the, the fourth one, go with the mission, we feel like spiritual maturity uh, really has not come about until we're going outside the walls of the church to minister to other people. 
with the love and with the truth of Jesus. And then as you look at our values on the left side of the frame, there are seven there. I'll note two in particular, generous-hearted and mission-minded. And I note those together because they are very much linked. We believe it's our responsibility as a church to use a significant amount of our financial resources to support those doing missions and ministry outside of our church, locally, in our community, and around the world. And in 2020, that has, uh, to a significant degree, taken the form of providing food for people. So that right now we're collecting food for a local ministry, City Lights, but we just received a, a beautiful thank you this week from one of our missionaries in Guatemala, Eric Stone. We couldn't convert his video to the form needed to show you this morning, but he wanted to, to say thank you for the support because they're giving out lots of food. I heard a Latin American uh, leader say one time, when America sneezes, our country gets pneumonia. And what he's essentially saying is that it, it, economic stress here causes a dire crisis for us. And that's the case in much of the world right now. The food needs are severe in many parts of the world. So all that is to say, uh, thank you for your giving to our church. We support missions. We do giving out of our general fund giving that you provide through your generosity and your tithes and offerings. But I just wanted to take a moment to, uh, to acquaint you with our vision frame and let you know that's, that's who we are. We're an outreach-focused church. We believe that spiritual growth leads to an outward focus as we follow Jesus' example in missions. Thank you again for your support of our church. Now, this morning, as we continue in our One Story series, we come to the little New Testament book of 1 Thessalonians. It's the first of two books, double books, as they're sometimes called, First and 2 Thessalonians. We're looking at the first letter the Apostle Paul wrote to this church. The background on his ministry in Thessalonica is found in the book of Acts, Acts chapter 17. Paul had gone there, he had preached there, he had been persecuted there by people who didn't like his preaching there, but a church had formed. And now he's writing back to this young church early in his uh, uh, ministry, and he's encouraging the church. He's encouraging them because they were experiencing affliction, suffering for their faith, and he's also trying to clear up some, some questions. One of the questions uh, that's apparent in his letter to 1 Thessalonians may seem like an unusual question to us, but it was not unusual for them. Apparently a question had arisen in Thessalonica among Christians about believing friends and family who had already died and there was a fear that they would somehow miss out when Jesus returned. And so in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and verse 15, the Apostle Paul writes, For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. In other words, those who have already died, who have fallen asleep, they're not going to be left out. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, 
and so we will always be with the Lord. That last verse gives rise to what is sometimes referred to as the rapture, being caught up to meet the Lord in the air. Now, why was there such a question among the church? We've got to realize that the early Christian church, the ones to whom the Apostle Paul and others were writing these letters, they lived with, with the expectation that Jesus might very well return in their lifetimes. In fact, it sounds like, you know, for the most part, they believed that he would. Now, there's nothing in the Bible that promised that, but they certainly lived with this expectation. And in many ways, that is a healthy expectation. And the Apostle Paul, in, in addressing their question about those who had already died, then goes on to teach us about the day of the Lord. That is the day of Christ's coming, his second coming, the second coming of Jesus in the passage that Maddie read for us just a moment ago. We're going to look at that passage this morning. And we'll see here some things that the Apostle Paul tells us about the second coming of Christ. First of all, his coming will be unexpected. Nowhere does Scripture teach us to try to pin down the day or the hour. It's very clear his coming will be unexpected as we read in verse 2 of chapter 5. For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord, and that's Paul's term for this day when Christ re returns, the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. So what's his point? Just like we don't expect a thief coming in the night, it's going to be unexpected. And this is very consistent with what Jesus taught often in the Gospels. In Matthew chapter 24, we read that Jesus' disciples came to him and asked him a question and said, what will be the sign of your coming and of the close of the age? And Jesus goes on to give them an extended teaching and answer to their question. And in Matthew 24, verse 36, we read his words. Jesus said, concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not the angels of heaven or the Son, but the Father only. For as were the days of Noah, so will the coming of the Son of Man be. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark. And they were unaware, unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. Like in Noah's day, people didn't believe Noah that this flood was going to come, despite the great ark they saw him building. So when the floods came, they were unaware, caught off guard, swept away. Jesus said, it's going to be that way with my coming. When I come, apparently uh, many people will be unaware. He goes on later in the same chapter to give instruction to his disciples saying, stay awake for you know neither the day nor the hour. His coming will be unexpected. Secondly, his coming will bring joy to believers, but judgment to unbelievers. We don't often think about this, but it's taught uh, very clearly, and it's emphasized in Scripture that Jesus' second coming, while a great time for believers who will marvel at the Lord and, and, and enter into the joy of the Lord, it'll be a time of judgment for unbelievers. The Apostle Paul writes these words in the second book of Thessalonians, uh, 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 7 to 10. His return 
will be to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us, Paul writes, when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. Wow. That sounds pretty serious, doesn't it? They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might when he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed because our testimony to you was believed. You see in that uh, second, if you'll advance that slide, second scripture, um, this contrast when Jesus returns. Uh, punishment for those who don't believe, but relief for believers, relief from their affliction, relief from their suffering. Uh, Jesus will say to some, enter into the joy of your Lord. People will marvel at Christ. It'll be a day of incredible glory. But we've also got to remember, for our friends and family, for people who do not know Jesus Christ, this unexpected coming of Jesus will be a day that brings a severe judgment. That should move us to alertness, to sharing the gospel, to praying for our friends and family who don't know Jesus. Maybe you have friends who don't go to church anywhere. This might be a good time to invite them to start joining our church online if they're uncomfortable walking into a building. So as the Apostle Paul lays this idea out of the second coming of Christ, I'd like to look now at three things that we as believers are called to do as we wait Jesus' return. Four things, actually. I added a fourth one after your outline got printed. Number one, we're called to readiness, spiritual alertness. We read this in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 6 through 8. It's Apostle Paul. He's writing to believers now, and he says, So then, in light of the unexpected return of Jesus, let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. When the Apostle Paul says, don't let us be asleep, don't let us be drunk. He's talking about spiritual complacency, spiritual lethargy, spiritual sleep. Rather, he says, let us be alert. Let us be awake. And this is something Jesus emphasizes often in the Gospels. Paul goes on to note that since we belong to the day, let's make sure we have on the breastplate of faith and love and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. To belong to the day means you belong to Jesus. Jesus is the light of the world, and to belong to Jesus is to be a person of the light, a person of the day in contrast to a person who is in darkness or a person of the night. So he's talking to those who are believers, and he notes that believers also have this breastplate of faith and love guarding our hearts and the, the hope of salvation for a helmet. And so as we contemplate this idea of being ready, being spiritually alert, being watchful, being spiritually awake, being a person of the day, I would just ask you this question. Those of you here, those of you watching online, 
What if Jesus did return today? Or suppose you died today and you stood before God and he said, why should I let you into heaven? What would you say? God has prepared the way for us to enter the joy of the Lord, and that is by embracing what Jesus did for us on the cross in his death, in his resurrection from the grave, receiving him as our Savior and Lord. I would urge you toward that decision if you have not yet done that. That's the first step in spiritual readiness. But there's more. As the Apostle Paul emphasizes this alertness, Jesus did too. In Matthew 24, where he was still answering this question of his disciples, what will be the sign of the end of the days of your second coming? Jesus, in teaching them, includes these words in Matthew 24, Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. He, he doesn't mean you can't sleep at night. We're supposed to sleep. The Bible says he gives his beloved sleep. He's talking about spiritual alertness, spiritual readiness. He says in verse 44 of that chapter, Therefore you also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. It's foolishness to try to predict the day and the hour. The Bible doesn't teach us to do that. His second coming will be unexpected, but we're called to alertness, to readiness. Jesus goes on then to teach a parable about Ten virgins waiting for a bridegroom. We might think of them as, as bridesmaids. And they have these lamps, and five have no oil in their lamps. Five are prepared with oil in their lamps. The bridegroom returns, and in Jesus' parable, the ones with no oil say, Lord, open the door to us. And he answers, truly, I say to you, I do not know you. And Jesus concludes the parable with these words, watch, therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. The point is spiritual alertness. The question for us is, how do we stay spiritually alert? How do we stay spiritually watchful, spiritually ready? Well, being in Scripture, for, for, for me, is certainly one, and I'm sure it probably is for those of you who are Christians. Study of God's Word, not just a surface reading. Hearing His Word together in worship as we're doing today, praying fellowship with other believers, these things help us. But there's certain things that really promote spiritual complacency. Sometimes too much entertainment. You know, you sit around all day, you watch two or three football games, you watch a movie that night, you feel like the end of the day, like, wow, spiritually kind of less than alert overindulging, like eating too much spiritual junk food. The idea is to keep our spiritual edge, to live ready, to live with alertness, so that if Jesus came today, we would be spiritually prepared to rejoice in him. It would not be called unawares. In other words, live as if he could return any day. So the Apostle Paul calls us, number one, to spiritual alertness, spiritual readiness. Number two, he calls us to do something that may seem awfully simple, but it's this, to encourage and build one another up. In the midst of all this teaching about the Lord's second coming, 
He tells the Thessalonians who were suffering affliction, who were suffering persecution for their faith. In verse 11, the last verse that Maddie read a moment ago, therefore, and the therefore applies to everything he's just said about Jesus' second coming. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up just as you're doing. These folks were suffering in Thessalonica. They were being persecuted for their faith. Many listening today, you're saying this is a year in which I've suffered, suffered a lot. But I'll tell you, oftentimes the best thing to do when we are discouraged is to look for an opportunity to encourage somebody else. What I'm really feeling discouraged about something, <laughs> I like to look for somebody in the church who I know is going through something hard and, and call them to pray with them on the phone. And don't think I've ever called you this just because I'm discouraged or something like that. That's not the reason why. I love to call and pray for people anyway. But I've learned it's a good thing to do when you're discouraged. It's to look for an opportunity to build up someone else. Maybe we should ask more often, who, who am I helping to build up in the faith right now? Who am I helping in their spiritual growth? Who am I helping forward in their walk with the Lord? Thank you, by the way, to those of you I know who do that all the time. You teach our children, you encourage, you build up, you work with our students, you lead small groups, journey groups. Thank you for that. Number three, the Apostle Paul says we're not only to live ready with alertness, we're not only to, to look for opportunities to build up, to encourage others. Number three, we're called to, to progress in something that he calls sanctification. Sanctification is a word that, that has to do with growth in likeness to Jesus, growth in holiness. comes from the, 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 the root word uh, that means set apart. It's often translated as uh, a form of the word holy. A sanctuary is a set-apart place related to this same root idea. And as believers, sanctification is a lifelong process. The new birth, being born again, being regenerated, being converted, happens in a, in a moment. The Spirit of God brings this about. Our sanctification is also brought about by the Spirit of God working in us and with us. And it's, it's a lifetime process of growth. And there are three things to note about it in 1 Thessalonians, <clears throat> this letter to 1 Thessalonians. Number one, that sanctification involves abstaining from some things. Abstaining from certain things. The Apostle Paul says that very specifically in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 3 to 7, where he writes, this is the will of God, your sanctification. For this is the will of God, your sanctification. You'll see those words on the screen. That you abstain from sexual immorality. That each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter, because the Lord is an avenger in all these things, as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. For God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. Sanctification involves abstaining from some things, putting them away. 
But sanctification is not just about don'ts. It's also about do's. It involves pursuing certain things. And the Apostle Paul gives a beautiful list of things to pursue, things we should do in 1 Thessalonians 5, verses 16 to 21, for we read these beautiful words, rejoice always. Now imagine you're one of these folks, you're in a church that's suffering affliction, persecution. Affliction is a word that comes up a number of times in this little book because they were afflicted. He writes, rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Do not quench the spirit. Do not despise prophecies, but test everything. Hold fast what is good. Rejoice always, even in affliction. Pray without ceasing. What does that mean? I'm not sure. I think it means live in a praying frame of mind. I've known people who do this, I think, to a significant degree. I remember uh, a, a woman who's now died, but for many years prayed for me. She would call on the phone and pray for me. And she'd, she'd be asking me what to pray for. And in the middle of a sentence, she'd all of a sudden, she'd be saying something and just start praying. You wouldn't finish your sentence. Well, I'm glad you shared that. And now, Lord, we ask that you'll do this. And it was just as if it was kind of funny to listen to sometimes. It'd be half talk, half praying. Live this way. Give thanks in all circumstances, not for evil, but in all things in which God is working for the good of his people. Do not quench the spirit. Seek the presence, the power, the gifts, the working of the Holy Spirit more fully in your life. Do not despise prophecies. I understand a prophecy here to refer to spirit-guided speech that builds up, encourages, and comforts others. That's how Paul defines it in 1 Corinthians 14. And test everything. Hold fast what is good. Test everything by Scripture. Sanctification involves abstaining from certain things, pursuing certain things. And then thirdly, sanctification involves reliance upon God, the great sanctifier. Rely upon Him. And we read these beautiful words in 1 Thessalonians 5, verses 23 and 24. As Paul draws this letter to a close, he writes, Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. So you see who it is who does the sanctifying. We are being sanctified. It's a process in which God involves us. We're to pursue sanctification. We're to abstain from things, to pursue things. But we're to do so with an attitude of reliance upon the Lord humility before him, for he is the great sanctifier. And so Paul's praying for the Christians, may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. And may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He links this progress and sanctification to the coming of Jesus, the expected return of Christ. And then he ends with these comforting, assuring words. He who calls you is faithful. He will do it. Don't ever feel hopeless about the prospects for your spiritual growth. Yes, you're involved in sanctification. God very much includes us in it. 
but faithful is he who calls you, and he will surely do it. Now, I told you I had three points, and then I told you four because I left one off the outline. I want to mention one more thing before we close this morning. Because I think it's really important. As we wait for and as we anticipate the second coming of Christ, there's something else believers are called to do. It's not in our passage today, though it's throughout the writings of the Apostle Paul. And it's this. We're called to evangelism. We're called to share the gospel with other people. Jesus in Matthew 24 and verse 14, and I think you'll see this verse on the screen, gave what I think is one of the clearest um, predictions of, of, of what would precede his coming when he said this, this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. Now, to me, that's pretty clear. That's pretty clear. This is going to be done before the end comes. The question is, how is that going? How is that going in the world right now? Well, I'll say this. There's progress being made, but there's much to be done. If you want to study this, a good place to start is a website called the JoshuaProject.net. Uh, the JoshuaProject.net focuses on unreached people groups of the world. And an unreached people group is defined as a, a, a place where there are fewer than 5% professing Christians. Now, what do you mean by a people group? You see the verse on the screen? Jesus said, this gospel will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations. The word Jesus uses for nations is the word ethnesin from the, the Greek word ethne, which is, is sometimes rendered as a people group. It's not necessarily a nation as we know it today with the boundaries around the countries of the world as we know. So don't just think the, the, the all nations here refers to the number of countries in the world today. I think it's more properly understood as a people group, and there are far more people groups than there are countries in the world. The Joshua Project defines an unreached people group as one where there are fewer than 5% professing Christians, 2% or fewer evangelizing or evangelical Christians. You'll see a chart on the screen that gives you an idea that by their estimate, there are, among all people groups, 17,000 people groups, and that's a whole lot more than there are countries in the world, but they count unreached people groups uh, in each country. For example, the Kurds in Iran would be a group. The Kurds in Turkey would be a group. Uh, where there are differences in language and expression and so forth, they count that differently. But the daunting number is the one on the left side of the screen, the 42%, uh, percent, which is their unreached category. Fewer than 5% professing Christians. That's a whole lot of people in the world, and um, the other groups are various degrees marginally, uh, superficially reached. In summary, though, perhaps the best way to understand this whole situation is this. There are just short of 8 billion people in the world today, about 7.75 billion. 
And estimates are that about 2 billion people, about a quarter of the world, have not heard the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's an estimate that comes from a source called Operation World. Most of those people live in a part of the world that's known as the 1040 window. And I think you'll see a slide that shows where the 1040 uh, window is on your screen. That uh, longitude and latitude there is the 1040. Um, yeah, the 1040 window, that section that you'll see on your screen. Now, Jesus taught that we're to do more than just take the gospel, though, didn't he? Because he told his disciples, go into all the world and make disciples of all the nations, all the ethnes. And then he adds this, which is really challenging. Baptizing them in the name of the Father and Son and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to observe everything I've taught you. Wow. That's a tall order. And to do that, those people need to have Scripture in their own language. Now, our church is involved with Wycliffe Bible translators, and they estimate there are 7,000 languages in the world. At least 2,000 of them still need a translation in their own language. But you know what? Technology is really helping here. Wycliffe Bible Translators, collaboration with other translation organizations, the Wycliffe Global Partners, um, are working on 1,900 languages right now, which is pretty remarkable. But even when they, they get that, you know what else is a challenge? About a billion people in the world are illiterate. They're oral learners. So the challenge is significant. About 7,400 unreached people groups in the world. It seems daunting, doesn't it, when you think about it? But let me, let me say this. What if every church adopted an unreached people group? I understand there are about 300,000 churches in the United States of America. And most of the biggest churches in the world are, are, are not in the U.S. now. They're in other countries of the world. What if every larger church, a cluster of church, just adopted one unreached people group. 10 or 11 years ago, leaders in our church felt led this was something we should do. And a team of people prayed for about a year, adopted an unreached people group, population in this country, northern, uh, this district, not country, but northern region of India, identified as an ethne, unreached ethne, unreached people group, population of about 84,000 people in 2011. And uh, a young family from our church ultimately moved there. Today there's a medical clinic. Today there's a church. And I want to share with you something Pastor Wes was given recently. Um, it is, and, and Wes says this is the first scripture he knows of in their language. It is the New Testament in Psalms and Proverbs that has now been translated there. And yes, give God the praise for this. And thank you for being a missions-focused church. Thank you for your giving. It's your giving that enables us to do this sort of thing. But I want to ask you to join us in prayer for more. If you want to learn about this unreached people group, just go out these doors or middle doors and go left and look at the big display there. Flick on the videos and, and watch what's there. But 
I want to give God praise, and I want you to join us in praying about what more can we do. We're not finished in this country, of course. There's much to be done. There's much more to do. And we want to be a church as we're awaiting Jesus' return that takes part in that. Would you join me as we pray? Father, we want to be ready for your return, the return of our Savior, Jesus. Lord Jesus, you've given us this mandate. We need your help. It cannot be done apart from the power of your spirit. And so we pray for an out, greater outpouring of your spirit upon us, upon our church, that you would show us what our part is, what we're to do, that we do it with all our might, and that you would get the glory for all that's done. Thank you for what you have done. Thank you for this translation amongst our own unreached people group. Please pour out your spirit there. Lord, you have done this, and we thank you. May you get the praise and continue to lead us forward as we pray in the great name of our King Jesus. And we say, even so, come, Lord, and may we be ready.